Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks, Knight Frank's weekly research podcast. I'm Patrick Gower and today I'm joined by Head of UK Residential Research Tom Bill and Global Research Associate Flora Harley. Hi guys. Hi Patrick. Hi Patrick. This week we take a look at New Zealand where the government has just intervened in the housing market with the stated aim of targeting prices. Low rates and huge fiscal stimulus have swelled asset prices globally. So are these kind of curbs coming to a housing market near us? But first, I want to focus on the UK. Unemployment is now going to undershoot all of the worst case scenarios, according to the forecasters. Expectations for manufacturing growth are at levels we haven't seen for five years. And consumer confidence is now at its highest level since the start of the pandemic. So, Tom, what does all this mean for the housing market? Are we out of the woods? What can still go wrong? Yeah, I think you're right. If you you look at most economic indicators at the moment, they're all pointing in one direction. Everything's more positive, certainly than most people thought several months ago. And so what that does for the housing market is actually provide quite a a buoyant backdrop. Obviously, sentiment is is always a, a key component that drives demand and supply in the market. But at the moment, it's particularly important. I think the market is particularly relying on sentiment at the moment. I think more broadly, we're going into more positive territory obviously um are we out of the woods uh probably not quite yet but are we past the sort of the deepest darkest thickest part of the woods probably we are so uh, we're making that sort of transition it's a strange time almost i think when you almost look back at what happened and you tell the story of the pandemic this is a bit of a bit of an interregnum almost between other events when you say not quite yet what what isn't uh, certain yet what are the main uncertainties still hanging over the market I think the principal uncertainties are around the a new variants of COVID. Um, so yes, the vaccine programme is being rolled out. Yes, it's very successful. But we don't quite know the effects of any new variants coming down the line. And I think the other thing is we don't yet know how long lasting the vaccine is. How, what is the new rhythm? What is the new sort of way that we're going to have to live with COVID? And that will only become clearer over time. So I think for, in terms of what that does to sentiment in the market, it gives it a short-term boost. And the market is sort of is very strong at the moment. It's been helped by a stamp duty holiday. But what it doesn't have quite yet is that sense of finality that we're moving into a sort of a new era. We're transitioning, but we don't know quite what we're going into. We know we're coming out of something that was bad and we're going into something that's probably better. But when the market has that finality, when the market is able to think, right, we're not going to go into a lockdown four. Mm-hmm then I think there is a sort of there's a stronger underpinning. At the moment, things are just kind of, you know, running along quite nicely and all the economic sentiment, you know, indicators are, are pretty positive. But, you know, it'll at some point we'll have to sort of see, is that something that's going to last? Mm-hmm. OK, so in the broadest sense, pretty benign. But yeah. let's take London as one example. You've currently got no international uh, overseas buyers. Well, perhaps we have, you, you know, perhaps they are doing you know, converting these virtual viewings and so on. But you've also got this trend of the move or escape to the country. People want more space. I'd be interested to hear whether you think there's permanence to that. And then Brexit still feels like a loose end. So broadly, economic sentiment's great. But but what about the capital? There seems to be a few moving parts. Yeah, no, there are. Absolutely. You've you pointed to them all. I think the other sort of big unknown uh, and I think this is probably something that's becoming obvious is the more that we vaccinate it's not simply a question of right we vaccinate and then we kind of switch back to where we were we've got the new variant possibilities we've got you know how long is this going to how long do the vaccines actually have effect but the other big question I think that plays into this and particularly noticed in London is that you know what's happening in the UK is happening 
in a way not in isolation from the rest of the world and so international demand international travel corridors are people able to fly in those are still big questions hanging over the market that particularly affects the central London market in this case. And I think that's that really is a big unknown. We just revised down our forecast for prime central London because of that, because there isn't any real clarity. And in a way, the more the UK vaccinates, the more it's going to want to protect those gains and it's going to, you know, there are going to be restrictions on travel. And so I think there are big question marks over international demand, which is clearly there, which is clearly building and is frustrated to some degree. But how and when that gets released, I think, you know, we can't we can't know that yet. There are things there are several things we can't know. OK, if we stay with prime central London briefly, you've got international buyers. It's a big the big pool of buyers in those markets. But also you've got employees working in financial services. Yeah. I know you've been following Brexit closely from the beginning. I saw this week that the UK and the EU have signed this memorandum of understanding. Yeah. But at the same time, we're getting these headlines about Amsterdam taking significant trading volumes. How under threat is the city? What does that memorandum of understanding mean? And what are the knock-on effects for prime central London as a housing market? I think the memorandum of understanding itself doesn't really mean a lot. Uh, it's a talking shop, effectively, where the regulators will, you know, from time to time sit down and just, you know, have a chat with each other. <laughs> It doesn't really have any impact on the granting of equivalence, which I think is the other thing that's been playing out in the background. Is the EU going to grant equivalence for financial services for London? It's not really, it's certainly not in its interest to do anything quickly because, as you say, some trading has already gone across to Amsterdam, so euro-denominated trading, share trading and derivative trading. Now, the longer that status quo sort of becomes embedded, I think the more difficult it would be for that to come back. So... I think there has been some business that's been lost and some of that business is unlikely to come back. The bigger picture, though, is it's not a huge amount in in, in the grand scheme of things. It's not, it's not fatal by any means for London. I think, broadly speaking, the numbers are it's sort of 8% of, of what of the financial output, financial services output in London is still up for grabs in equivalence talks. Some of that may be lost, some of that's um, may be retained, but that doesn't actually even mean that eight percent of headcount is going to be lost from London. It's just that the, the business, some more business, could go across to the EU. We'll know more, I think, after the summer. But again, I don't think we can we can sort of talk about what's happening in the future with reference to the past. Things are going to change. There's going to be a lot of change coming. Uh, London is going to be, or the Treasury is going to be publishing a consultation document in the summer around what next for the city, how it's going to start to diverge potentially from the EU. I don't think the UK is working on the basis that you know equivalence is really going to be granted. So you could see things like dark pool trading um, made easier. I think wholesale, those wholesale institutional investors are going to find it easier to trade in London. And that marks a sort of philosophical difference between mm-hmm. London and the EU. The EU, like things traded over, mm-hmm. over main exchanges. So there's those sorts of things, but we'll start to get more clarity um, from the summer on that. I was just going to add into that, that, you know, there is this memorandum of understanding and in the paper that says a lot about trading and business moving to Amsterdam. But if you look at what's happening in London at the moment, we're on course for a record first quarter in IPOs. So it shows the commitment of companies to the city and its financial um, future. And I think that just underlines, you know, investor confidence and general confidence in London as a financial centre going forwards. Mm. Okay, so we've got an increasingly bright UK economic picture but also the global economy, the OECD forecast that the global economy is going to expand 5% this year. 
It's clear that rock-bottom interest rates and huge fiscal stimulus have averted what could have been a much more severe economic disaster. Both, however, have fueled asset prices, uh, and the subsequent rise in inequality is clearly a big concern for policymakers. So New Zealand this week intervened in its housing market following a year-long 20% surge in house prices. So by clamping down on investors, analysts think prices are going to decline by 10%. Floor affordability is an issue across scores of housing markets now. So is this a sign of things to come? Is this coming to a housing market near us? Well, I think... Uh, governments and regulators have been intervening in housing markets for years because affordability has been one of those top priorities. Um, Housing market policy has come to the forefront and is right at the top of the political debates. It it has been in the US and the UK more and more recently. And we've seen rafts of measures trying to cool markets across the world. Singapore, Hong Kong, Vancouver, they've all introduced overseas buyers, additional stamp duty. You've seen bans in New Zealand previously. You've seen the surcharge in the UK. So we've seen a a lot of measures aimed at this before. So I don't think there's going to be anything massively radical in this space that we might see, but it's such a double-edged sword. So what happened in New Zealand, they've made mortgage lending bigger restrictions in it. But some people are saying that that's actually make it harder for first-time buyers to get on the ladder. So how do you balance that act between enabling first-time buyers and people to get on the housing market, but also try and call it at the same time? It's it's a really hard balancing act for policymakers. And is there even consensus on... I suppose two questions here. Is there even consensus on how you improve affordability? And how do you even decide what fair pricing looks like? I, I don't think there's any consensus at all. I mean, there's there's some measures that will say uh, it's got to be a certain ratio of income. But then you could look at the fact that income and wage price growth across the world has been quite stagnant over the last decade. So if you try and maybe boost income and that will help to reduce inequality, that could also um, improve affordability. So again, it's looking at it from both sides of the coin and not just what house prices are at, but also relative to wages and income. Mm. And that's actually worth throwing back to Tom, actually. The average house price to average earnings ratio in New Zealand is 8.15 times. And in the UK, that ratio is even higher uh, at 8.5. Tom, we've seen the government target investors with tax rises in recent years, but I don't think it's ever been, you know, with a a stated aim of hitting house prices like Jacinda uh, Ardern's move in New Zealand, has it? It perhaps hasn't been quite so direct. It's obviously on the radar of the Bank of England pretty clearly. I think affordability is something that we talked a lot about before the pandemic, and it's probably something we're going to talk about a lot after the pandemic as well. I don't think it's really gone away. It'll keep continuing to shape demand, I think, around around the capital and beyond, and those trends of you know people moving out of the capital to secondary cities. Those sorts of things have obviously been happening for their own reasons during the pandemic, but I think beyond, uh, on the other side, if you like, uh, I think we'll start to see those trends get picked up again, mm. and um, it, it'll be an ongoing, it'll be an ongoing problem. I'm not, and I'm not sure you can resolve it uh, in a sort of five-year electoral cycle. Yeah. Okay. And Flora, it caught my eye. Ruchi Sharma, Morgan Stanley's um, chief global strategist, he wrote a column for the FT in which he said that New Zealand PM and her fellow progressives worldwide have come to embrace easy money as a way to finance social programmes, but need to recognise its negative impact on financial stability, wealth inequality and housing affordability. But we've got central banks like the the Fed 
in the US signalling no interest rate rises until 2024. It seems to me that there's a recognition of this massive problem, but policymakers are just stuck between a rock and a hard place. Completely. I mean, when you look at what central banks' aims are, it's to keep financial stability in the systems. And ever since the financial crisis and what's happened in the COVID pandemic with uh, massive amounts of quantitative easing and um, asset purchasing, low rates, all of these things have helped to stem some level of unemployment. So actually, they're keeping that financial stability. And on one side of the coin, meaning that unemployment losses are lower than potentially would be. So that's helping inequality that way. But as you said, it's fueled that asset price surge, which then has broadened inequality. But when you look across the world, there's bigger underlying factors which have contributed to that growth in inequality, such as technology and globalisation, which some say have lessened inequality globally. But on the flip side, in some places, it has kept wages lower and therefore has made inequality worse. You've also got to look at it between countries as well as in countries, gender, different age groups. There's inequality in all edges of the world. And I think governments and central banks are both really, as you say, in a rock and a hard place and trying to balance that because they're trying to support the economy and growth and wages and employment. Mm. But also it's helping um, at the higher end to boost those asset prices. So how do you balance that it's mm. it's a no-win situation almost and i suppose if display you you take on the more immediate problem of employment um okay before we round off that's all we've got time for for now but i do as usual want to get one other story from each of you that you think our listeners should be keeping track of let's stay with you for now Flora. what have you been reading well, mine's the current blockage in the, the Suez Canal. I think last year we highlighted the fragility of global supply chains. And again, it's been highlighted a year on, but for a very different reason. It's something about 10% of the world's water cargo goes through the Suez Canal. And so the longer that it's blocked, the um, knock-on that's going to have for global supply chains is quite massive. Overnight, I think the oil price rose by 5% and that's going to have follow through impacts in inflation at the moment, which is currently all over the news agenda and investors minds, albeit it will be quite a short, sharp shock. So it will just be transitory and feed out. But I think it's something just to highlight again. I mean, it's yeah, quite phenomenal. So it's a bit of a quirky story, but it's significant enough for people in the real world to actually see a change in, say, at the petrol pump or in the prices of the goods that they pay for? Definitely. It depends how long it stays stuck in the canal. Hopefully they'll be able to move it quite quickly, but the ship is something as as long as the Empire State Building is as tall, apparently. So it's quite quite a big obstruction in the way. But yes, um, consumers could feel this in terms of higher petrol prices and gas prices, but it might not be sustained. Mm. Okay. And Tom, what about you? Uh, thank you, Patrick. Um, am I allowed to talk about a bit of research that, that we're currently writing? Um, <laughs> I, haven't been reading, the plug. I haven't been reading widely enough this week, clearly. Uh, you touched on it earlier, actually. It's that escape to the country story, which is fairly well established by now. People have been looking for more space and more greenery, but we're looking at the, at the data and we'll have more on this next week. Uh, actually, it's changed slightly um, over the last few months. There was an initial flurry, certainly, of people were looking to go quite rural and not quite remote. But in recent times, it's shifting slightly. It, it's evolving. There's much more of an urban flavour to it. And I won't tell you which one, but there's one London borough that um, that is now, uh, over the last uh, several months, has become the, the sort of the most 
the biggest change between um, uh, in terms of the number of offers, uh, a number of properties that are under offer compared to a few months ago. So uh, we'll be revealing all next week, but uh, it's just an interesting twist. So sorry, people are coming back. In terms of the number of properties going under offer that across the whole country, the biggest jump over the last several months has actually been in in a London borough. Okay. And I'll and I'll tell you which one on Monday. Okay, bated breath. And it's not the one you think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bated breath. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Flora, for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Patrick. For more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note, which goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. See the show notes for details. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. There's no show from us next week due to holidays, but we'll be back the week after. And thank you for listening to this week's Intelligence Talks. <laughs>